and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast. My name is Mike, and yes, I'm still your host. <laughs> Even though, no, I'm not going to go there. Okay, let's see. We have been talking about, well, last episode, I kind of went on a little tangent, an episode tangent about holiday times, if you're on active duty in, uh, in the Navy. But to get back on the regular show track, uh, if you've been following along, we've all the episodes, with the exception of the last one, all the episodes have been focusing on the training pipeline for the job yours truly did in the Navy. And starting, well, we haven't done basic training, but starting with uh, air crew school, moving on to A school, search and rescue school, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape training, a course called the AW Common Core. And then the last two episodes before the holiday one was about the RAG, the Replacement Air Group, technically known as the Fleet Replacement Squadron. So now, at the end of your time in the RAG, you are sent to the fleet. You are signed a fleet squadron. Now, at the time... There was three fleet squadrons for my community. My community being LAMPS Mark One. LAMPS stood for Light Airborne Multipurpose System. The LAMPS Mark One platform, which was SH2F Sea Sprite helicopters. Three fleet squadrons. So when you finish the RAG, which was HSL 31 you would be sent to one of three places, HSL-33, HSL-35, or HSL-37. And at one point during your RAG training, you were asked which of those three squadrons you wanted to go to. I laugh because you're basically making a choice between living in San Diego or living in Hawaii. HSL-37 was in Hawaii at uh, Naval Air Station uh, Barber's Point. I'm sure they've moved since then because I've heard Barbara's Point is closed. Um, and then HSL 35 and 33 were there in San Diego, right next to HSL 31. Um, now, there was there was a chance you could have been, uh, well, I forget what the pilot, sir, grad, selectively retained graduate um, to, to stay for instructor duty at the RAG. Didn't happen all that often, um, but it was a possibility. So anyway, you made your choice. And you didn't have a whole lot to go on, really. It's where do you want to live? Do you want to go to Hawaii or do you want to stay here? And if you stayed here in San Diego, the differences between HSL 33 and 35 were cyclical at best. You know, one squadron was on top of the other at any given time. Uh, Just before our graduation, HSL 33 had just won its second or third battle E and its third safety award from the wing. Um, So... Okay, I want to go there because they're the best. It does, but the, <laughs> the funny thing is, once you end up there, the cycle can swing the other way. And you know, HSL thirty five, your squadron, your bitter enemy across the way, they're getting the the battle ease and the safety award. So it, it it didn't matter. You know, it's they didn't really operate all that different. Hawaii, you know, that's Hawaii. You're going to be there. You're going to be there for the rest of your enlistment at least. They might even bug you to extend. I don't know. 
Okay, so went to basic training in 1982. I finished with I finished with um, the RAG, the Fleet Replacement Squadron. I finished them late February, I want to say. Course complete, all done. Now we're just waiting on orders. So this is what, at that point they call it stash time. And we would be sent to various things. I got sent to f- aircraft firefighting or shipboard aircraft firefighting for three days. I got shipped to a couple other places just to kind of get me out of the way. Try to fly whenever I could. But, you know, when you have students flying, uh, there's not a, not a, a whole lot of, of open spots on the flight schedule for just you to deadhead around unless they had, unless there was a, a, a flight or a mission that was just for pilot training. And that at that point, didn't matter who wrote in the back as long as they were qualified. So, you know, we had, you get your qualification letter at some point through the training so you can go on flights. So anyway, you know, you're waiting for your orders to come through. Now, my class was three people. And <laughs> was my class three or four? No, that's how sad is that? Three people. The fourth, what could have been the fourth guy, he was in the class ahead. And I want to say almost, was good for us. Almost everybody in the class ahead got sent to Hawaii. One guy got to stay back. And I, he went to HSL 35. As a matter of fact, I, I wanted to go to HSL 33 because a very good friend of mine had gone there. He's like, yeah, come on in. The water's fine. And yeah, sure. And he's telling me, call your detailer. Tell him you want to go, even though, yeah, you even if you call the detailer. All right, here's a slight tangent. A detailer is uh, a person who is in, who is in charge of your job in the Navy. He's the one who knows where all the openings are, okay? So you tell, you can call him directly, tell him who you are, tell him where you're at, you know, give him all your information and say what you want. And supposedly on the phone, he could look at the list and see what's available where and help you decide. But, uh, you know, it's too chicken. You know, I've been in the Navy not even two years, a year and a half, and all in training environments. So I'm not, you know, not comfortable with playing the system just yet. My friend had, had already re-enlisted once, so he'd been around the block a while, and he's you know, fully comfortable with that. So anyway, um, so yeah, he's like, come to HSL 33, it's the best, you know, whatever. Um, so the three dudes, and the, <laughs> the funny thing was, like the two classes ahead, the two previous two classes had all gone to Hawaii or HSL 35, if for some reason, HSL 33 didn't have or need openings or new people and wasn't looking good. But my class of three, one guy went to Hawaii, one guy went to HSL 35, and I got to go to HSL 33. Now, the problem was, <laughs> here it is, you get your orders, it's like March, you still got another, middle of March, you still got another month to wait. You were, I think my report report date was like April 15th or April 20-something. I, it's just like, don't show up before then. So I, again, I you know tell my friend because HSL thirty three and HSL thirty one they're right next door to each other. Okay, so you see all these people. Uh, the the lamps Mark one community as a whole is fairly small, especially in San Diego. You have the fleet replacement squadron, two other squadrons. Uh, you know, the third squadron in Hawaii they're on their own. But yeah, so you, you see all these people hanging around. You're in the same part of the air station. It's just the way it is. 
So I'm telling him, hey, I got my orders. Yay. He goes, okay, when, when are you coming? Well, uh, another month. He goes, oh, no, no, this is how you do it. You you tell them you want to take leave for however many weeks. You know, it's a transition leave. I'm checking out of HSL 31, going on leave. When my leave is done, I'm checking into HSL 33. But no one says you can't come back from leave early. Oh, ah, hey, all right. So I go tell them, yeah, I want to take, I might have had two weeks or, or two and a half weeks. Yeah, I'll take all this leave because I got, you know, I got to kill time. All right, great. You know, they, they said the early should go and leave based on your leave balance is this. So you check in when your leave is up, you're checking in on your check-in day. Okay, no problem. So I go out on leave thinking I'll spend three days on leave and then check in. I actually spent almost a week because I was visiting family and having a good time. So anyway, I check in. I'm like two, I'm like a week and a half early. The squadron didn't care. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. Check in. Okay, you're here. Great. So you check into the squadron. You're assigned. You know, I'm I'm an AW. I'm a naval air crewman. Not yet. I'm still not designated a naval air crewman. I'm just a trained aviation anti-submarine warfare systems operator. I'm an AW, AW airman, AWAN. Introduced to the AW shop. Um, you know, there's a chief. An E7, you know, guy in charge of the shop. We have a, a, a division officer. And division officer reports to department head, which is the operations department, Commander McAfee. I always thought he was a nice guy, Commander McAfee. Short temper, but he the short temper is from suffering fools. <laughs> so if you did what he said the first time he said it and get paid attention, you had no problem. But if you were, you know, an airhead and he had to tell you twice... He'd have what we'd call a Mac attack and just light you up. You know, so funny. Face turn red and he'd just be screaming. Anyway, so Commander McAfee, was, he was our department head, operations department. Couple, uh, the division, a couple division officers were the air crew shop. My chief, uh, leading petty officer, first class. Usually the chief and the leading petty officer were shore, shore duty guys. They wouldn't deploy. The rest of us are, on, are there on sea duty. And you get put into the mix. Now, as a fully trained AW in the Lamps Mark I platform, uh, I am barely useful to my fleet squadron. I show up. I know the systems on the aircraft. I know how to operate the systems on the aircraft. And the squadron will take your, will take the, the rags word that, that you've been trained up properly and that you've passed uh, what's called a NATOPS check flight. NATOPS, so I haven't said it before, stands for Naval Air Training Oper- and Operational Procedure Standardization. It's it's a way to put rules and standardize the approach to naval aviation. So a NATOPS check flight is something you get every year, and it's something you have to pass before you can graduate from the Fleet Replacement Squadron or the RAG. And show up at your fleet squadron. Well, when you show up at your fleet squadron, uh, <laughs> having taken an ATOP ch- check ride, um, they're gonna they're gonna make you go through it again. All right, they're gonna make you go through. It's like they sort of take the rags word for it that you know what you're doing. They'll put you on the flight schedule, but the flight schedule you're still doing training sometimes with another with a senior 
air crewman with you, someone who's already gone through and been winged, all right? Because you don't get winged in the RAG. You get winged in your fleet squadron. And you only get winged after you meet all the requirements the fleet squadron has for you to become a designated naval air crewman. So I arrived at HSL 33 in April of 1984. My air crew designation came the following February. Um, in the Lamps Mark I community, to become designated naval air crewman, you have to become what's called a plane captain first. You have to get tested on recognition. You have to pass another Nate Tops check ride. You have to... Uh, I don't know, do egress training. There's all kinds of things that they basically almost start over and make sure that what the rag taught you, you still remember or you still can be effective doing. Okay, so I check in, get assigned to the air crew shop. Um, no collateral duties just yet because, you know, I'm still kind of wet behind the ears as far as they're concerned. Uh, get shown the air crew lounge, which was upstairs. Oh, wait, let me back up a second. Let me tell you about the hangars we had. The aircraft hangars that we had were built in the 30s. They were built for fixed-wing aircraft. The legend has it that torpedo bombers uh, were the residents, the original tenants of these hangars along this particular section of Naval Air Station North Island. You know what? Maybe... I have I have a, I have a picture. I'll have to put it on the website of Naval Air Station North Island with the different hangars identified. It's an old black and white picture taken from the old Terra server days back in the late nineties. <laughs> I might be able to get a, a a newer, fresher Google Maps picture too to put up there. Anyway, so this section, these this grouping of one, two, three, four, six hangars, seven hangars. Uh, were all built in the 30s. They were all torpedo bomber, supposedly, hangars. And now they housed uh, HSL-31, which is the, the, you know, the rag for uh, H-2s, two H-2 squadrons, an H-60 squadron, HSL-41, the new the new rag for the new aircraft, the Lamps Mark III program that was coming to replace us, uh, HC-9, which flew combat search and rescue, and these old big old green H3s. Um, that's five hangers. I think maybe it was only five hangers. Anyway, so anyway, that's that section of town. Section of town. That section of the Naval Air Station, that's where we were at. And these hangers, buildings, they're you know, big steel and glass doors that were manually operated. We could fit. We might have been able to fit very carefully, all 10 aircraft assigned to HSL-33 in the hangar. But we are... <laughs> if HSL-33 HSL was assigned 10 aircraft, all 10 aircraft were never uh, at home at once. Always at least two of them were on deployment, most likely four were on deployment on ships or overseas somewhere. So most I ever saw in there were six, and it was very easy to fit six airplanes in these hangars, six helicopters in these hangars. Um, without without the blades folded. We could easily fit 10, I think, with the rotor blades folded on the aircraft, but unfolded rotor blades, six easy, three on each side, not a problem. So you have the big open hangar space. 
And then like wings, or, or not wings, but you know, these long hallways, okay, on either side. And the long hallway on one side was basically the front door, squadron duty office. You go down the hallway to one side was the air crew shop, the operations office. You make a left and it's a door into the hangar. Or you go the other way and you see the admin section where the yeoman and personnel types hung out, the command senior chief who had a door into the hangar space and all the way down to where the commanding officer and the executive officer hung out with also their own door into the hangar space. Or and if you go out in the hangar space all the way across down that way was all the different maintenance shops. You had the you know the main maintenance uh, maintenance control where the big maintenance folks hung out. You know the the, the senior maintenance folks hung out. You know, a shop for the jet engine mechanics, a shop for the electronics technicians, the, the electricians, a shop for the parachute riggers. We didn't have parachutes. That was just their they just uh, survival equipment men was their technical term their technical title. They're the ones that maintained the survival and rescue, uh, the survival gear that you carried with you when you flew. Uh, the tool room, uh, all the each shop had its own set of tools, but if there were specialized tools. They didn't need you know eight copies of it. They didn't need one, so you go to the tool room and check tools out. And then there was a the quality assurance office, the QA office, or QC quality control, whatever term you wanted to use. Um, they were also in charge of making sure all the maintenance publications were up to date because new things would be released. So that's one side. Yeah, you know, the operations. So basically, the operations side and the maintenance side, right? Well, in, in our in our hangar, there was a steep set of uh, set of stairs. We went up to the top on one side, and up there was the air crew lounge <laughs> or shop, whatever you want, and and a conference room. And um, so. Because the actual air crew shop had only like two or three desks, and if there's 15 air crewmen, would be wise them just be hanging around the space for four people. So we'd go up to the air crew shop and and study recognition, study our knee tops, study whatever, take lots of breaks. But that's if you weren't flying. The objective was to get on the flight schedule as much as possible. Uh, now, as a new guy. I would be sent flying. Now, I remember that first summer, uh, there was a lot of a lot of emphasis on getting all... All right, let me, let me introduce another term here or explain how the Lamps Mark I community deploys. Uh, unlike other squadrons... Uh, the Lamps Mark I helicopter community doesn't deploy the whole squadron at once. The squadron forms what are called detachments or debts, and a debt or detachment is assigned to a ship, a ship that is uh, capable of helicopter flight operations and supporting helicopter flight operations and supporting a helicopter detachment. So requests would come, I'm sure, through... Uh, the third fleet they're the they're the ones that are home ported in San Diego that to you know com third fleet would say to com com nav air pack right commander of naval air forces pacific fleet uh you know this battle group is deploying you know the battle group is centered around an aircraft carrier so this battle group is deploying with this air wing on the aircraft carrier with these ships 
and these we're gonna have x number of helicopter support capable ships and we'd like to have so many detachments or, or so many helicopters assigned to our battle group usually two or three and calm now air pack would turn around and turn to the wing at that point in our in naval aviation history was uh Com ASW Wing Pack, Commander of Anti-Submarine Warfare Wing, Pacific Fleet, which was in charge of all the H-2 squadrons, the H-60 squadron, the H-3 squadrons, and the um, S-3s, the fixed-wing, the fixed-wing anti-submarine aircraft, their little jets. Um, I think they reported to the wing as well as up to the uh, the carrier air wing. I, I, I'm not sure about their organization. But anyway, I know we reported to the Anti-Submarine Warfare Wing Pacific Fleet. And that guy, a one-star, maybe a two-star, he would turn around and say, okay, and pick and choose and pluck <laughs> squadrons to deploy. You know, all right, HSL-33, and this coming up deployment scheduled for this time, you need to provide one detachment. HSL-35, you need to provide two detachments or one detachment. Or HSL-37, you would need to supply the detachment. Yeah, I, I don't know how they would work, uh, to be honest with you. I don't know if, if if a battle group departed from San Diego nine times out of ten or maybe 99 times out of 100. I, I don't know the frequency. The, the first stop would be Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And at that point, maybe the if an HSL-37 detachment was assigned, they would embark at that point. So anyway, you know, here this this is how the squadrons would get their assignments. You provide, you know, this many detachments for this many ships at this many times. And so there you go. So the people that were assigned to a detachment that was like a, they were like a subset of the squadron. They had their own little chain of command. They weren't supposed to work on squadron stuff. They're supposed to work on debt stuff. They they did their own flight. They maintained their own flight schedule. They did their own maintenance. They did all their own stuff. Everybody else was called home guard. That was a term we used, home guard. So if you're a home guard air crewman, you were either trying to fly in the home guard aircraft or you're up in the air crew lounge learning something, getting ready to be placed on a detachment. And in the operations office, they had a little, uh, I'm sure it's a whiteboard now, but back then it was, piece of plexiglass over cardboard with you know uh squares sectioned off by colored tape and with a grease pencil they would write in the ship name uh the detachment onc that they would you know because everyone took turns right you know you're in a rotation so when it was your turn in the rotation they put the the four officers and the two air crewmen now at this point naval aviation history or this point there's lots of AWs. There's there's extra. So some deployment, some detachments, instead of just a standard two air crewmen and four pilots, were going out with four pilots and three air crewmen, which was the detachment that I got put on. So anyway, you can go in the ops office and see what they kind of had in, st- in store for you. Um, and all, but it was written in grease pencil, not in ink. And you know things changed as people came and went, or something happened, or someone got hurt or sick or whatever. All right, so as a home guard AW, fresh to the squadron, the squadron wants to get me up to speed. 
So I I had to do I had to do search and rescue refresher training. I remember that first you know that first summer might have been early summer June July. We would go to the pool and practice some search and rescue stuff in the pool, and then one day we would go out early in the afternoon and practice uh, our jump because you had to have so many day jumps and so many night jumps to stay current. And so all the home guard AWs who were not on detachment, because to be on a detachment, you had to be current to begin with. So those guys were excluded. But they would take everybody else out into a boat, assign us an aircraft and an air crewman, and we'd do our so many day jumps, fly around until it got dark, and then did so many our so many night jumps, and we were done for the day. Wait a second, maybe it was two days, because I remember leaving the boathouse at like dusk. No, it had to have been a two-day evolution. So one day we did day jumps. The next day we came in later and did our our nighttime, our night jumps to get current. Uh, let's see what else do they have us do. Study recognition. There, reco, reco slides. You had to be able to identify pictures of Cold War era Soviet-made war machines. Specifically, ships, you know, uh, Soviet Navy ships and Soviet naval aircraft. So you'd get these slides, and they, you know, you'd see the slide, and you'd have to uh, shout out the. It was, it was kind of a group thing that gets you comfortable with whatever. When it was a real test, it was, you know, paper test. But the slide would come up. Okay, who can tell us what kind of ship that is? Oh, that's a Krivak, or that's a Cresta Two, or that's a you know Kirov, or. Kiev class carrier. Now, some of the ships were easy to identify because there's only one of them. Kirov is a great example. Uh, Kiev class aircraft carrier, also a great example. They're, it's the only kind of aircraft carrier they had. But some of the smaller destroyers and cruisers, yeah, they all kind of look the same. <laughs> uh, so it behooved it. I mean, you would re- submarines too. Holy cow. I forgot submarines. Hell, we're submarine hunters. We had to identify submarines by sight as well. How could I forget that? And if you remember back in the, the previous show about AWA school, you also had to identify submarines by the sounds they made in the water. Right. But yeah, you had to, you had to pick them out. So we'd be up there looking at these slides in some American gear. They would show us some American gear to see if you could, uh, Name classes of ships of American gears. It's actually kind of fun doing sight recognition. Um, nothing you can't find in a, in a Jane's uh, Jane's Guide to Modern Warfare book. All these, none of this stuff was secret. The NATO names for all these aircraft and these ships and these submarines. All right, see what else do they have us do? We do. Uh, oh, uh, we would go down into this to the hangar space and. Um, set up an aircraft for egress training. Put you in there, sit you in the air crewman seat, you know, put a blindfold on you and say, okay, go out. If you go out the window, how would you go? And the window was pulled out. You'd have to, you know, mime that I'm blowing out the wind with my elbow. I'm taking it, walk them through or talk them through what you're doing and climb out the window or climb out the door. You had to be able to show that you could find the, the door releases Blindfolded, so you can release the door and get out. You know, so all this stuff. I arrived in April, and all this stuff um, occurred during that summer. We had a 
uh, a physical readiness test, uh, which is run a mile and a half, do so many sit-ups, push-ups, body fat measurement if you weighed more than you're supposed to. Um, what else? What else? I'm trying to get all the stuff out of the way before I get to the point where I was taken out of the aircrew shop. Um, I guess that's about it. All right. So again, the, the, the squadron is wanting you to get up to speed so they can put you on a detachment. Now in the lamps, Mark one community to become a Naval air crewman, not only were you assigned an AW and learned the things to be an air crewman, you, you had to become what's called a plane captain. Now, in the Navy, a plane captain is kind of what it sounds like, someone who's in charge of the airplane, right? But a plane captain has the responsibility of inspecting the aircraft and in certifying that it's airworthy and it's safe for flight. The Navy has inspection programs for pre-flight inspections of aircraft. And that's before the pilots do their own pre-flight or an aircrew do their own pre-flights. Um, the inspections were called daily inspections and turnaround inspections. And each were good for a different amount of time and each had a different depth of inspection that you performed. Uh, a turnaround inspection was good for 24 hours. Okay, a daily inspection was good for three days, <laughs> seventy-two hours. So, <laughs> a turnaround inspection is what you did when you expected the aircraft to fly again soon. A daily is what you did when you didn't expect the aircraft to fly again soon. So, if you did a turnaround inspection and for some reason the aircraft did not fly again soon, like within twenty-four hours, you had to do another one. So, in my time. As a plane captain for H2s, I hardly ever did turnaround inspections. We just did dailies because we wanted the aircraft ready to fly for more than just 24 hours. So now, to be to become a plane captain, you have to learn. Again, up to this point, I've learned the systems inside the air the aircraft. You know, radar, magnetic anomaly. Um, the Sonobuoy trans- transmission, the data link transmission, as part of the pre-flight for air crewmen, you would go into the back of the aircraft into what they call the tunnel, and you would check the equipment that was in there, various electronic black boxes. Um, you know, so you learned your part of the pre-flight of the aircraft. Well, now they now they need you to know the aircraft so well that you can perform an inspection on it and say that, yes, this aircraft is safe to fly. And the best way that they would have you do that is they would send you out to what's called the line shack. And the line shack is, well, it sounds like it's a shack out on the flight line. And it's where, now there's some people whose job, aircraft handler, that's where they work. That is their, that's their start day. I mean, that's where they work the whole time. Uh, I don't remember, we didn't have a whole lot of aircraft handlers in HSL 33, going out to the line shack was kind of like a temporary duty. Everyone had to take turns. Every every maintenance shop would have to send someone out to work at the line. And the air crew shop had to send 
guys out to work the line so they can become up to speed and become playing captains. And the first step to becoming a playing captain is you work the line. Now, the line, the line shack is where was in charge of moving the aircraft from the hangar to the flight line and back. The line shack was in charge of recovering the aircraft when they come back from flying. At North Island, the aircraft would they would you know they would land at the, on the you know on the landing on the runway, and they would taxi over. These aircraft uh, helicopters had wheels, so they'd roll over to a certain point. At what point? At one point, you would have to go out there and guide the aircraft into its spot and shut it down. And the reverse of that, you, you plane, the, the line shack was in charge of launching the aircraft. That meant driving the self-propelled generator in NC-8. You'd drive it out to the aircraft, hook it up, fire it up, so the aircraft had it, uh, DC power to start the engines. You know, So you'd start the engines, you'd be out in front of the aircraft while they went through their pre, pre-start, post-start checks when they're ready to fly. You guide them out to a certain point and send them on their way. And the other thing that the Lion Shack was responsible for was doing all the daily inspections of all the aircraft every day. (laughs) So, at one point, I want to say it was August. So I've been in the squadron barely four months. I've you know been I've been. Refreshed. I've gone through search and rescue refresher. I've been doing my recognition. I've been doing all my studying. Um, so now it's time for me to become a plane captain. So they send me out to the line, and you stay out in the. <laughs> you get sent out there, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You're going to stay out there until you learn until you learn your stuff. It's not like we're sending you out there. You got three months. It's we're sending you out there. You need to learn your stuff. Uh, very early, maybe, maybe very like first, first, second, first week of August for sure. First couple of days of August, I got, I got sent out there. Um, okay, so line shack gets sent out to the line shack, and it's my very first day. I got my brand new blue coveralls, my maintenance guy coveralls on. I'm just, I mean, I know how. I've seen aircraft launch and recoveries enough from being an air crewman. I know how to do that. But getting taught all the maintenance, all the mechanical systems to be able to inspect an H two and certify it safe for flight—that's that was a big task. And you know, there's no better way than to get sent to the line shack. Now, the line, the line shack operated three shifts. They operated days, mids, and graveyard. Mids were afternoons, right? Days work from. Uh, 7.30 to 4. Uh, mids work from 3.30 to 11. Or 11.30, 3.30, 30, 11.30, 3.30, 11.00. And then mids work from 11 to 7.30. Get the get the idea there? Okay. Now, mids hardly ever had to launch and recover aircraft. If an aircraft is flying after 11 o'clock, there was a, uh, it was rare. Okay. This now these are all for home guard aircraft. Remember I said debt or detachment aircraft did their own thing. So they had their own people to launch and recover aircraft. Um, so they could they did their own flight schedule. Line Shack didn't have to take care of that. Days did almost all 
launching and recovering. Very few da daily inspections. Very few inspections. Mids typically would, would end up recovering a few aircraft or do launches and recoveries for night flights and would do a certain number of daily inspections just to help the graveyard shift dudes. Now, the graveyard shift guys, what two days did they have off? They didn't work Friday night and Saturday night, and they started Sunday night. Mids worked Monday through Friday. So Friday night sucked because there was no uh, graveyard shift to come on to relieve you. The other nights, you could we would try to okay. If we had few few recover, launches and recoveries, we could start working on ter daily daily inspections. And sometimes we'd have like four four daily inspections. Now I'm not at this point I'm not certified to do a daily inspection. All I'm certified to do is grease the rotor heads and grease the tail rotor, which is part of a daily inspection. And that's something that it was a it was a crap job. And as a new guy, you got stuck with the crap job. So I, for every daily, every helicopter I was involved with daily inspection, I had to grease the rotor head and grease the tail rotor. The rotor head had 44 grease points on it, 11 per blade. The tail rotor had 24 grease points on it, 6 per blade. No, that doesn't sound right. The 44 I'm sure of, maybe it was only 12, 3 per, 3 per tail rotor blade? I want to say 12, 3 per... Anyway, a lot, okay? And sometimes, you know, and during, if you had to grease the rotor heads and tail rotors of three aircraft, you're filling, refilling grease guns at one point, and that was a dirty, nasty job. Hated doing that. And then the other thing was fuel samples. Had to take fuel samples on all these aircraft as part of a daily inspection, too. So that, that entailed laying on your back on the ground underneath the helicopter, with a screwdriver in your hand and a mason jar, pushing up these little drain valves, and these things would click in place. Okay, so if you pushed it, it's like a think of it like a like a a switch or a button on on electronic device. You push it, and it clicks in and stays on. You push again, it clicks off. Right. Well, these things had a reputation that if you pushed it and clicked it in, it would be very hard to click it and push it off. And you would get fuel spilled all over yourself because you wouldn't be able to shut it off. And the jar, the mason jar you're catching, it would fill up and overflow. So you had to, you know, gently push it up to let the fuel flow, but not push it so far that it would lock open, right? And there was, uh, how many fuel collection points? So there's two internal fuel tanks. So there's four, two per tank there. And I want to say eight. For some reason, I want to say maybe six. All right, six or eight. Two on each external fuel tank, so that's four. So there's eight, yeah. Two on each drop tank, two for each internal tank. Two, four, six, eight, so eight. So collecting eight fuel samples in mason jars, and they were labeled with where they came from because as part of the pre-flight inspection for both the air crewman and the pilot was to check the fuel samples. So I did greasing the rotor head, and I did fuel samples. And then when I was done with that, I would follow around a senior line shack guys uh, um the, the particular guy i worked with most with was um 
a guy named Petty Officer Brown. He was a, a jet engine mechanic, AD2 Brown. And he was a very patient guy, and, and he, he was basically in charge of teaching all the new people that were becoming plane captains how to become a plane captain. So first he did all the craft jobs, fuel samples, grease rotor heads. And a lot of the time while you're doing that, he was doing daily inspections on one or two of the aircraft. And then, after you're done with the crap jobs, he would take you through the daily inspection on the last aircraft or the last two aircraft, depending on what the workload was. And, you know, you did a daily inspection. You looked at certain things, or call it everything, from top to bottom, side to side, front to back. You'd open up the nose and check the battery. You'd check the electronic equipment in the nose, then move down the right side of the aircraft, check the engine, check tires, check landing gear, go to the back, you're checking tail rotor, come up the left side of the aircraft, you know, same thing again, engine, landing gear, then you climb up top and you check rotor head, transmission, fuel, uh, hydraulic reservoirs, oil reservoirs, all this stuff. And if you found them low, found the hydraulic fluid reservoir low, you'd fill it up taking careful note of how much you put in. Same with the um, with the oil. The oil was low. You had to pump it in a special little oil or <clears throat> oil machine. Little hand-pumped oil funny thing was called a Pond 6. So he would take you around and, and grill you. And, and, and you have... Now, the daily inspection is called a daily deck because it's essentially a deck of cards, right? They would say... Check this component for this. Or check this component for that. Check this. You know, you're checking all these things. And, you, and you'd, fl- you'd flip through it, essentially. Look at this. Look at that. Look at this. Look at that. All over every, you know, up, down, sides, like I said. Top to bottom, front to back, side to side. And you do this every day. Five days a week. Now, what was, like I, like I said, Graveyard Shift did... Almost that was their work was to do daily inspections. And if we had six aircraft flying that day, or seven aircraft flying that day, depending on how many were home or not, um, we almost always had to do on mids at least two, sometimes three aircraft. Graveyard shift would handle the rest. Friday nights. Now, Home Guard, the squadron didn't fly on Saturday and Sunday. Those were non-duty days, okay? The, you've heard me talk about duty sections and watch standing sections before. The duty sections would take over for Saturday and Sunday, and they would stand there watch, duty officer, assistant duty officer, duty driver, the line watch, the ramp watch, the guy out there. Um, washing aircraft, they all did that on the duty, you know, on the, on the duty section. So Friday was Friday... Midshift line line check midshift Friday were the last people working at the squadron before the weekend. Okay, that meant no graveyard shift would come, was coming in. So we had on Fridays meant we had typically more daily inspections to do because no graveyard shift coming in, and all these things every aircraft had to be ready to fly just in case. Don't ask just in case what because there was never an answer. It was all aircraft need to be ready to fly unless they were in a down status waiting on some parts 
you know, they're in some sort of disrepair, okay? But if they were up, up aircraft, they had to be daily ready to go. So I, I, I don't know how many times on a Friday I wasn't, we didn't, we didn't get off work at our regular time. We usually stayed an hour, almost an hour over every Friday. It sucked. Oh, I didn't tell you the best part. My first day on the line shack was the day I got assigned a mid-shift. <laughs> so my first day I'm out there. Uh, the the guy in charge tells the officer in charge, "Hey, we're we're short. We're short a guy for uh, mid-shift because one of the guys who was who was working them." who was out there for his temporary duty, finally got to rotate back into his, his shop. And like, we're short one. And the, the guy just kind of looks over the crowd and says, you, points to me, you're going to stay mid-shift. So my first day on the line shack, I worked a double. <laughs> oh, crazy. But I'll tell you what, I learned if I had stayed on days, it would have taken me a lot longer to become a plane captain than working mids with a guy who knew his crap and was able to teach it because there's a lot of people out there that know their stuff and are not good teachers. They, they can't teach it. And uh, AD two Brown was a good teacher. So I was out, I was out at the line shack for a good six weeks. Now you have to remember this, this is Jermaine that the, the federal government, their new, fiscal year right the new the new year starts october 1st on october 1st of every year that's when the government you know budgets for that year kick in all right so october 1st of 1984 is the fiscal year for 1985 right that's when the budget for 1985 kicks in that's on october 1st and um that's when certain things start happening um and in our case, our detachment was going to get ready to... The detachment I was assigned to was was going to leave on October 1st for a six-week uh, cruise. So our detachment had to spool up on like two weeks before that. So I remember, you know, August and I'm busting my hump out there on the line shack. I hardly ever saw my fellow air crewmen. I didn't get the fly. I may have got to fly once to keep my four hours because to, to keep your flight pay, you have to fly four hours a month. So I got put on the schedule minimum, you know, flight schedule minimum. My job was to work the mid shift on the line shack and become a stinking airplane to be, become a stinking plane captain. So middle of September. Now I know which detachment I'm on. At some point, I think shortly, I don't know, sometime halfway through my line shack time, the the detachment I was going to be assigned to was, was firming up and the ship we were going to deploy on was firming up. So, you know, I knew it was coming and I, I remember clearly one day I show up to the line shack, you know, I get there at three 30, I'm putting on my cover, I go out there and start working. And the two other air crewmen, cause I was on a, I was on a three air crewman detachment. They come out to the line shack and they say, uh, come with us now. You're done on the line check. <laughs> Starting tomorrow, we're a detachment, and you show up back to work at 7:30. And so, all right, see you guys later. And uh, you know, they asked how far how far did I get on my what's called a PQS, your personal qualification standard. 
a PQS for playing capital was a book that had all these little things that the, that you had to be able to do. You know, the the trainee can identify this. The trainee can identify that. The trainee can do this. And it's signed off. You know, it's initialed by the guy who's training you or teaching you. And I said, yeah, I think I got all my PQS signed off. I was doing a good job. You know, I was able to do daily inspections pretty much on my own, but I had to have, again, had to have my instructor follow along with me because I wasn't certified to do the paperwork. I wasn't certified to sign the aircraft safe for flight. So, you know, good for me. All right, good. Because, you know, you're going to go before a plane captain board before we deploy on the 1st of October. So you need to get ready. So I had to cram for that. And remember I told you upstairs was the air crew lounge in the conference room. So the plane captain board was up in the conference room. Uh, the board was three guys. It was the maintenance officer who is a senior officer in the squadron. It was two maintenance control chiefs, uh, senior enlisted folks. And one other guy, I can't, I can't remember his position in the squadron. He was also an officer, but call call him a mid-level. Not quite junior officer. Maybe it was a junior officer. I don't know. But somebody involved in the maintenance side of things. And they and you stood in front of them, and they quizzed you various things out of the NATOPS, various things out of the maintenance publications. You know, at, at what point is a braided line no longer good? How many... How many uh, breaks in the in the steel braiding around a braided oil line or something on an engine it makes makes it bad and you know it's two strands per plat was the answer and, and sometimes they'd ask you well which publication was that in I mean it was just you know an, an half hour of grilling essentially of the minutia and trivia of the maintenance of an H two and then they'd say okay thank you very much and you know. You'd, go out the room and like, and they convened this board for like six or seven dudes to go through that were all trying to, they're all going through the PQS to become a plane captain. And they would ask them all the questions and, and myself for our detachment. Cause the other two air crewmen, they had already been around for a while. They're already one, one, one was reenlisting here soon. So he, he'd been in his four years. So he knew his stuff. The other guy, it was his first deployment, but he'd been, and he in the squadron longer than me, so he knew his. He was already designated plane captain. But as myself and another junior guy on our detachment, as part of this group of dudes that were supposed to get certified to be plane. Anyway, so they run all the guys through it. At the end of the day, they come out and they announce these guys passed, these guys didn't. So I passed the first time. Yay, good for me. Now I'm now a plane captain. I can inspect. I can. <laughs> I can inspect an aircraft and certify it safe for flight. Now you might be wondering why in the Lance Mark One community it was a requirement for the air crewman to be a plane captain, whereas in the in the HS community, you know, the carrier based helicopter community, it wasn't. Or in any other squadron or community type type aircraft that had enlisted air crew where you did not where the the eight the air crewman wasn't required to become a plane captain. And that's because in the Lamps Mark One community 
the the possibility of just the two pilots and the air crew and being the only people with the aircraft landing someplace and shutting down someplace they it'd be it would it behoove them to have someone in the aircraft to be able to certify the aircraft safe for flight and in the navy that was an enlisted man's job to become a plane captain no officers or playing the officers had different the pilots officers pilots had different responsibility to the aircraft than inspecting it and certifying it safe for flight so that's why in the Lamps Mark One community, the the air crewman, because typically he's the only enlisted guy in the airplane. If it got stranded somewhere, could certify the aircraft safe flight, and they can start it up and take off. Right. So there you go. That's that's the thinking behind it. So all all air crewmen in Lamps Mark One community were plane captains. Just one more thing to do. Now, typically, becoming a plane captain at your fleet squadron was the last big hurdle to becoming to getting your naval air crewman designation to get winged okay so you know i finished i got i i passed my board for plane captain late september of 1984 so october november december january February, five months all the paperwork bundled up sent to the naval military personnel center wherever it is okay and five months before your designation came back. And in my case, my, my designation was dated in February. It didn't find its way to me until May. <laughs> two and a half years. I was in the Navy two and a half years from November, November of 82 to May of 85 before I got my wings. Two and a half years. Got to wear them for another year and a half and then I was done. Kind of funny, huh? All right, so what else can I talk about? For you know, what I, I've skipped a whole bunch of stuff for for home guard operations, and I think since I'm coming up on an hour, an hour's worth of talking here, I'm going to save the other the other aspects of home. I'm going basically I'm going to talk about is the antics, okay, of the naval air crew shop at HSL 33, the characters that were there. I think that's what we're going to talk about next time and the and the kind of day that we had a typical day in the antics. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that on the next show because I'm up I'm coming up on an hour and I and it's time to do the housekeeping stuff. So, so yeah, that that's going to wrap. That's that's it for this half <laughs> for this show about uh, the introduction to the fleet squadron. Um yeah, so next time, yeah, I'm starting to repeat myself. You like that? Okay, housekeeping. The email address, navalaircrew at gmail.com. Navalaircrew at gmail.com. Send me an email. Tell me you like it. Tell me you don't like it. I've had people send me emails uh, saying that they're enjoying the show and they would tell me about how certain aspects of the navy have brushed up against them grandparents that were in uncles fathers they would tell me they're you know they give me a little quick blurb about how what the navy's meant to them and i appreciate those and you can feel free to keep sending them if you don't like it and you have some suggestions for improvement send those as well or if you just ran a rant on me go right ahead skin's thick you can't be in naval aviation and not have a thick skin 
just the way it is. You get razzed so fast if you display any weakness. It's like sharks and blood in the water. iTunes, you can leave me feedback on iTunes. There's a couple of you that have done that. I appreciate any more. Anybody out there that doesn't want to send an email, but maybe they feel comfortable leaving some sort of feedback on iTunes, go right ahead. Also, there's a forum. Not a whole lot of activity going on it, but it's there. It's available for your use. Sign up. Leave feedback there. So that's the three feedback opportunities you have. And that should do it. I think it is time to wrap up and sign off. Thank you for listening. Take care. God bless.